Today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11. Lawsuits against believers. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Holy Trinity Church. I'm Sully, one of the pastors here at the church. And if you are new or visiting with us and uh, you thought that what we just did was a little strange, that's okay. Uh, let me explain. We, we just stood uh, for the reading of God's word and then we all responded with the thanks be to God. It, it might feel a little odd to you, but we believe here at Holy Trinity Church that God is not a far off, distant God, but rather he's a God who has revealed himself to us that he's a God who speaks to us. And so we stand for the reading of God's word, not because we're here to, to worship this book, but out of reverence for the one who speaks through it. Well, if you have questions about our service today, anything that we say or do, I, I would love to talk to you after, afterwards. We'd love to answer your questions and, and, uh, and explain why we do what, what we do on Sunday mornings. Uh, but considering questions or thinking about questions, today the big question that I want us to talk about is how do we find moral clarity in a morally confused world? Thinking about what does it feel like to live in a morally confused world? Well, I think a lot of us would say it's exhausting and hard and tiring. There's a, a musician, a singer, John Bellion. He wrote this album called The Definition. And in this uh, album, he writes about just meaning of life, uh, trying to, to bring definition and meaning to his experience. And he's got one particular song uh, called Human. And in a, in a way, I think he wrestles with what is it like to live in this morally confused world? And I don't, I don't believe he, he's, he's a Christian or a follower of Christ, but man, does he capture well what it feels like to live in a morally confused world. Let me read to you the opening uh, verse. He says, I always fear that I'm not living right. So I feel guilty when I go to church. The pastor tells me I'm, I've been saved, I'm fine. Then please explain to me why my chest still hurts. I spent 4,000 on the Mark McFlies, yet I'm still petrified of going broke. There's, a gorgeous, there's someone gorgeous in my bed tonight, yet I'm still petrified that I'll die alone. He really gets to the heart of it in the bridge. He says, see, I got GPS on my phone and I can follow it to get home. If my location's never unknown, then tell me why I still feel lost. I think about that a lot, that, man, this is a world where I should be able to find all of my answers on Google. Uh, my location is never unknown, and yet there's still something about it that makes me feel uneasy. There's something 
living in a morally confused world that is exhausting. It's tough when one moment something is viewed as, as good and right, and the very next moment it's vile and immoral. Now, before you start thinking that I'm just a pastor up here bemoaning uh, cultural change, uh, this is actually something that historians write about, how morals change in society. There's one particular historian, Gertrude Himmelfarb, who wrote about uh, and did research around moral change. Uh, I think it was uh, David Brooks in The Atlantic wrote about her and, and said that she's a historian of moral revolution. Moral revolution is that, that, that shifting of morality in our society. And her research really begins to expose how over time, different societies, uh, their moral compass changes. That due north begins to move. And when it moves, it feels like a revolution, a moral revolution. Theo Hobson, he actually wrote a book about 10 years ago describing what happens when a moral revolution occurs. He breaks it down into three phases. He says that in the first phase of a moral revolution, that which was once universally condemned is now celebrated. And then in the second phase, he says that what once was universally celebrated is now condemned. And the third phase of a moral revolution, where the rubber really hits the road, is that those who don't go along with all of the moral change, well, they too are condemned. Living in a morally confused world, it can leave us feeling like our chest still hurts. And we have this fear all the time that we're not living right. And then in a world where it seems like our location is never unknown, we can still feel lost. So today, I, I want to talk to you about how we find moral clarity in a morally confused world. And if you're a little bit exhausted, a little bit weary, if you're someone who is, is just tired of feeling like the ground beneath you is always shifting... Well, I want to speak a word of encouragement to you today, that moral clarity isn't some moving target, but we got to stop making the world our moral compass. The church, it's meant to be a beacon of moral clarity in a morally confused world, so to the hurting and the weary and the exhausted, I want to tell you this morning where you can find help and healing in this morally confused world. Before I dive into our text today, I want to ask the Lord for his help. So would you mind pausing with me and going before the Lord in prayer? Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we come to you this morning and worship you. We, we give you thanks that, Father, you are a God who has revealed yourself to us. Father, the world around us, it, it reveals and testifies to your goodness and your holiness. We Lord, we rejoice in the beautiful weather we've seen this week, and we, we know that you are the, the source of all good things. But Father, we also acknowledge that the world, it bears scars of our rebellion and brokenness. And we live in an age when it's hard to find our bearings. It's tough at moments when it feels like up is down and down is up, and we can't see straight. And so, Lord, I ask today... I pray for all of us in this room today that, Lord, you would speak a word of hope and encouragement to us. Father, I pray that you would forgive me of my moral confusion. Father, I pray that in my weakness, you might use me to make clear your word. By your grace and your mercy, Father, would you, would you surround us with your restorative love. I pray that it is your truth that we hold fast to today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Has anyone ever told you, you're better than that? 
Maybe you've made a mistake, done something dumb, and you're just like, man, Sully, you know better than that. It seems like all the time I have this thought in my head, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I know better. In a way, I think that's really what Paul is doing in our text today. He's trying to get the church in Corinth, Paul is the writer of this letter, trying to get this church in Corinth to realize they're better than how they're actually reacting. As we come to chapter 6 of the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to this church about how they're handling disputes within uh, their congregation, within their community. And he's disappointed. He's frustrated with how they're handling it. They're looking to the wrong places for help and healing in a morally confused world. They're, They're not handling these disputes and grievances well. And so today, as we walk through our text, what I want to do is I want to answer those two questions. Where can we find uh, find help in this morally confused world? That'll be verses 1 through 8. And then verses 9 through 11, I'll just turn my attention and we'll ask the question, how can we find healing in this morally confused world? So beginning in verse 1, if we could put verse 1 back up on the screen for a moment, or you can look at it in your Bibles in front of you. As I said, Paul is pretty frustrated with the church in Corinth how they're handling these little disputes going on amongst them. Look at what he says. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Of course, this is exactly what the church in Corinth was doing. These little disputes were arising, and instead of working through them uh, with love and patience with one another, they were taking them to court. They were suing each other, and they were going uh, to the outside uh, to figure out their internal problems. Paul is frustrated on probably multiple levels. Uh, For starters, he's frustrated that they're even having these little trivial disputes. But on another level, he's frustrated with how they're handling it. In a way, he is saying that uh, you're welcoming in the moral confusion of the world into the church. They have busted open the doors and flung open the windows and said, come on in. And so he's pretty frustrated with how they're handling this. You can hear it in how he writes verse 1. Do you dare respond in this way? Do you dare go to those who are unrighteous to figure out your own disputes? As we read the opening couple verses, when Jasmine read it a few moments ago, you might have noticed that there's just these question after question after question in the opening verses. You can hear in his voice this disappointment. And yet beneath maybe his disappointment and his frustration, Paul has this deep and abiding love for the church in Corinth. This isn't just an angry tirade, you know, uh, railing against the church in Corinth for how bad they are. Rather, what he's doing is is actually reminding them of who they truly are. He's correcting them by way of encouragement. He's not just trying to belittle them and make them feel small, but rather he's trying to lift them up and remind them of their true identity. Notice how he does this. Moving on in the passage, he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I know there's some pretty surprising stuff that Paul says here, but just follow his logic for a moment. He works through uh, this passage critiquing the Corinthians by looking to the world to adjudicate their disputes among them. They're looking to this city that was on fire to try to put out the fire within their own four walls. Paul uses this greater to least type of argument. 
He's saying that if you can do A, certainly you should be able to do B. If you are to judge the world, why would you go to the world to try to discern these disputes? He says, if you, we are to judge angels, why are you, uh, aren't you able to then decide disputes in the present? It, the logic goes, if you can run a marathon, you should certainly be able to take a stroll down the block. That's pretty much how he is trying to argue with them for why they're doing this wrong, that they shouldn't be going and making the world their moral compass when they themselves should be able to handle these on their own, these issues. Now, I realize that to our ears, this idea of the church judging the world or judging angels might sound a little strange or new to us, maybe even a little uncomfortable. Uh, It's interesting that Paul writes in a way as if this was common knowledge. He says, don't you know? Of course you should, that we are going to judge the world. We are going to participate in the judgment with Christ and that we are actually going to judge angelic beings. When we look at other scriptures to really like see, is this, is this true? Was Paul off on this? Is, does his logic hold up? We'll find that in Daniel chapter 7, uh, he, the passage speaks about the saints judging the world. In Matthew 19, Jesus actually alludes to this as well. But there's not a whole lot of scriptures that try to make clear what this really means or what this is going to look like. But what scripture is clear about is that the church, we are going to play some extraordinary role with Christ in judging the world, making God's righteousness clear to all. It's a privileged place, an incredible role that we are called to. And so Paul is saying, don't you know that that is the role that you will play? And if you are to play that role in in the end, shouldn't that have bearings on how you act in the present? Now, I know that uh, a few of you this morning uh, reading this passage might begin to think, is Paul advocating that the church never takes anything to the courts or never takes any issues to the right authorities? I just want to make something really, really clear this morning. That is not what Paul is saying here. As we look through the passage, Paul is saying that there's these, he calls them trivial disputes, little grievances, these things that are just petty They should be able to work these things out themselves. Civil disputes, not criminal issues. I think it's it's wrong when the church thinks that in order to protect its witness, that the church has somehow, leaders have somehow hidden and not disclosed when wrongdoing or crimes have been done. This hurts the witness of the church. This was a remind, I was reminded of this recently. I was reading um, a memoir by Fintan O'Toole. He's this Irish guy who kind of wrote this memoir about growing up in Ireland. It's a modern-day history of Ireland, and he writes about the impact of watching, watching how the church didn't report how priests were abusing children, the way that that impacted the whole culture of, of Ireland, the whole country, and how it impacted him personally, how that caused, in a lot of ways, him to grow disillusioned and distrust of the church. So I I just want to be really clear this morning. That is not the type of culture, not the type of church that Paul is advocating or describing here. Not at all. Rather, we as Christians, we believe that God is sovereign over all things. That means he is sovereign even over uh, the the authorities and governments. That when it comes to crimes, yes, they have been, been commissioned to actually adjudicate justice in those instances. And so if it's a part of your story that you have grown maybe 
disillusioned or distrust of a, has grown in you against the church because you have seen time and time again church leaders failing to handle crimes correctly. I, I just want to say that in some ways, I think your disillusionment is justifiable because that is not at all the type of leadership the church is called to or, or that the Bible describes. But what I can say and what I hope and I pray is that here at Holy Trinity Church, this might be a place that maybe some of your past pain and experiences might begin to be healed. And that I would hope and I would pray that here at HGC, we would be a church that would handle these things with integrity. And if issues arise, that it would actually help instill trust within the church. The church is supposed to be a place where we can find help navigating a morally confused world, not contributing to it. So coming back to the situation going on in Corinth, the church there in Corinth, they didn't have the issue about keeping things too hidden or not taking things to the authorities. What their issue was, was that they were taking petty issues to the courts when they should have been able to figure them out by themselves. Paul actually gets a little bit sarcastic, I think, in this passage. Earlier in the letter, he writes to the church and kind of is, is really critiquing them for thinking uh, that they were too wise or that they were a little bit too arrogant. They were better than they actually were. And he now turns and he says, these little issues, is there no one wise enough to figure them out amongst you, even though you called yourselves so wise? L- look at how the passage continues in verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to the law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Here's the observation I want you to notice in these couple of verses. Notice how many times he refers to them as brothers. If you have one of those scripture journals, uh, you can circle all of the times it references them as brothers. Paul here is reminding them that they're siblings, that sure, siblings have squabbles that begin to push each other's buttons and, and you can argue with them. But at the end of the day, isn't it true that siblings are often the people who help you through the hardest of times? Uh, older siblings who have helped you navigate difficult, difficult circumstances Man, siblings are meant to be there for each other, to help each other out, not to be a place, not to be uh, enemies, but rather they're supposed to be brothers. We're, we're calling this sermon series Church on Fire. And the idea here, there's actually a couple of different ideas going on, but one of the big ideas is that the city of Corinth was this place that was on fire with all these issues and disputes and wrongdoing. And in a lot of ways, Corinth was acting a lot like the culture around them acting like enemies rather than being this countercultural community of love and support. Sadly, this is an issue that's not only taking place in, in the time of Corinth and 1 Corinthians when it was written, but it's an issue that happens today. Just this last week in The Atlantic, Tim Alberta wrote this article about how the toxic culture of politics has just wrecked the evangelical church in America. There's this haunting line from his article this past week I don't know if Tim Alberta is a, is a Christian or not, but he, he wrote, he says, more than a few times I heard talk of civil war inside places that purport to worship the Prince of Peace. The account of the church that Tim Alberta 
reports in the Atlantic is not the type of church, not the type of community that we are called to be. It's not a picture of a community of brothers and sisters who love God and love each other and seek the wisdom of the Lord together. This cultural moment, it requires us to help each other, not hurt each other. If you think a little bit back to what, what, what Paul is doing in the, this letter to the Corinthian church, he is trying to give them a picture of what the church is meant to be, what the church is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be a place where you seek the wisdom of God together, a place that you come together and find healing and hope, a place where you seek holiness together. And as we turn our, our attention to this passage, he says it should be a place not of disputes, of defrauding and wronging each other, but a place where we can come and find help and encouragement. Because when you become a Christian, what you receive is a whole new moral map to navigate this world by. And the church, well, this is the community by which you learn to use that map. This is the community where we figure out how to to follow Christ no matter what life throws at us. So let me just bring a couple of quick points of application at this point. If you are in a, a relationship maybe that is strained, there maybe is just a little annoyance or frustration going on, a dispute between you and someone else, and don't let that fester. Go and make things right. Bring other people around you. Don't let small disputes lead to division in the church. Another application is that if you are maybe in a point in life where you're trying to make some decisions and you need some wisdom, man, this is, this is supposed to be a community where you can find help. And so bring it up at community group. Ask someone to pray for you. Come find a pastor or an elder or a deacon. We'd love to talk to you about it and pray through it with you. But hear me on this. Do not believe the lie that you are alone in navigating this morally confused world. I think that is one of the worst lies that the enemy can begin to cause to seep into your thinking. He knows that we are far stronger when we have each other. And so he'll try to isolate you make you feel alone and discouraged. But the truth is that this is a church, this is a family meant to help each other out, to give each other wisdom, to share it. And I've seen it. I've seen it here at Holy Trinity Church. I think about re-engage and I think about couples gathering together in homes for a number of months, sharing their collective wisdom together, helping each other out. I've seen it in community groups when people gather together and older families meet with younger families to know how to navigate educating their kids in the city. I've seen it in, in our church when people in the same uh, industry gather together and they think together about what does it look like to follow Christ in their industry. That's a picture of what the church is meant to be. And so Holy Trinity Church, may we be a place, a beacon of, of both help and healing in a morally confused world. A morally corrupt culture produces morally confused people. And so let's be a community where we can find help. But a second point that I want to make this morning is that a a morally corrupt culture also produces morally compromised people, people who need healing. You and I, living in this culture, we need healing. We don't necessarily always need, or I should say, we, we not only need help navigating future decisions, but we also need help navigating some of our past decisions and our past mistakes. As we turn our attention to verses 9 through 11, we come across this familiar refrain at this point from Paul, this way of asking a question, don't you know, do you not know? And this time he, he asks, do you not know that the unrighteous 
will not inherit the kingdom of God? These questions are a bit rhetorical. They're supposed to, of course, know that. And yet they're not living like it. In the course of Paul's logic, he's trying to point out to the church in Corinth, why are you looking to the unrighteous who won't inherit the kingdom of God? Why are you looking to them to figure out how to get to the kingdom of God? doesn't make sense. Why would you ask someone how to get somewhere where they've never been themselves? It's like asking a tourist in Chicago, can you help me find my way? They can't even find out where they're going, let alone help you out. And so this is why Paul is trying to remind them, don't make the world your moral compass. Take a look here at verses 9 and 11. I want to read verses 9 and 10. And here in these last three verses, there's, there's two lists that we come across. And this first list is a list of, of the unrighteous. Verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The main imperative that stands out in these, these verses is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking that somehow the world has directions that you don't have. That's not true. This list of, of the unrighteous, uh, it's a similar list that we came across last week in chapter 5, but this time around there's a few others that are listed. The adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, and thieves are added to this list. And reading it, it, it may feel a little uncomfortable, uh, reading a list like this. It may rub you the wrong way, and you might just want to dismiss Paul writing about the unrighteous or this list as simply saying, well, Paul, his morality was too wrapped up in the first century uh, culture. Many people have tried to dismiss him, saying, man, we have progressed. We know better, and so we can just dismiss what Paul says in these verses. Well, the issue here, well, particularly, I should say, that people have dismissed the reference to those who practice homosexuality as saying, well, we, we know better now. This is the idea, though, that the gospel somehow then is, is attached or wrapped up in in, in any one particular culture, and that's not true, actually. Gospel truths are transcend, transcend cultures, and what's actually really interesting in this passage is that Paul uses two really unique words when it comes to this phrase of, of the men who practice homosexuality, two words that are pretty unique, two words that, were, that many commentators and theologians see that Paul was putting together these words in order that we might connect his comments here with instructions that are found in the Old Testament related to sexual ethics. And so the argument that somehow uh, are these ethics are tied too closely with one particular culture can't be true because if, if it's connected to the Old Testament ethics, it was true in that culture, it was true in Paul's day, and it would be true for us today. But I, I don't want to just move past this list too quickly or be too glib about this because I think there's probably two ways that we respond when we read a list like this. Some of us read this list and we think to ourselves, whew, close one. I, glad I don't identify with any of those in that list. Let me just remind you that this is not supposed to be a comprehensive list of the unrighteous because we could certainly add to this list the proud and the arrogant. We could add to this list the liar, the one who is, who is de deceptive. Um, there is many, many others that we could add to this, and so I, don't be too, too quick to not pause and to reflect on this list and think you're better than what's listed here. But I think there's also a group of us who would read this list and 
And this is hard because you see yourself in this list and you identify yourself in one of these, these uh, unri- that are called unrighteous. To you this morning, I just want you to see that Paul is not writing here in a way to condemn or to actually put up bar and, and to, to judge you and to keep you out from the kingdom of God. But rather, when we read the text in the context, we see that Paul is actually writing in order to show you the way in. So let me go back and let me read verses 9 and 10 and verse 11. Here he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here we come across the second list, this list of Paul reminding them that they have been washed and sanctified and justified. What is being said here is that you once were part of this list, but now you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Here, I think what, what Paul is doing is he's, he's reminding them that there's a whole new way of viewing morality because of Christ. This is really the, the scandal of the gospel. It's not at the end of the day the person who makes the least mistakes who is counted as moral, but rather it's the person who finds themselves washed and sanctified and justified by Christ. The idea of being washed, I picture a power washer just removing all the scum off the side of a building. Sanctified, it's a word that might be associated with the temple or the priesthood. To be made holy is the idea there. To be justified, it carries with it the idea of a court, the law. Though you are guilty, you will be found righteous. Here is the beauty of the, of the gospel, is that we are told that though we once walked in these ways, we can find new life and healing in the gospel. You see, Paul is trying to remind them of their identity. He doesn't want them to forget that so were some of you. He doesn't want them to forget because forgetting often precedes being deceived. He doesn't want them to be deceived into thinking that healing can be found anywhere else. And so he wants them to recall that they, they have found healing only in Christ. There's a, a book that was published recently uh, that caught my attention because of its title. It correlates with our sermon series title. It's called The World on Fire, and the subtitle is Walking in Wisdom of Christ When Everyone's Fighting About Everything. I thought, well, that, that's probably a book I should be reading right now. And it's a collection of essays, and there's one by Elizabeth Woodson, and she writes this, this beautiful chapter in the book called a morning sin in a world that forgets it. I think her insights shed light on why it is Paul doesn't want the church to forget their past. He, she writes this. She says, Spiritual forgetfulness can simultaneously leave us overwhelmed by the suffering of life. Injustice is real, and many of us know people whose lives have been permanently affected by the sins of other people. But looking to the world to provide answers or vengeance for our pain will only leave us engulfed in a cycle of helplessness and despair. When the world tells us to forget our sins, Jesus tells us to mourn it. When the world tells us to find comfort in false truths and illegitimate justice, Jesus tells us to find comfort in him. 
The moral revolution of our day falsely promises that if you adhere to all of its standards, you will be found on the right side of history. Well, the reality is, is that it can make no promises about how to deal with your past sins, your past mistakes, your past decisions. Yet the gospel, it promises that we not only will one day, future, inherit the kingdom of God, but we can, in the, in the present and in the moment now, experience healing from our past mistakes. Unlike the moral revolution that will cancel you if you make a mistake, the gospel offers healing and restoration. Here's the beauty of this. Jesus, he came to be with the morally compromised and confused. He draws near to those who are morally bankrupt. Jesus subverts for us what we usually expect from a morally upright person. Instead of a person who stands off, doesn't want to mingle with those who are dirty or those who have made mistakes, as if somehow the, the sin of other people would rub off on him, he gladly walks into the crowds of sinners, dines with tax collectors, comes and touches those who have been sexually immoral. He comes because he knows that there is no greater cleansing agent than the blood of Christ. He comes to mingle with the morally compromised because he knows that there is nothing that can cleanse them but his own blood. In a few moments, we're going to sing about God's love, vast as an ocean, as powerful as a flood, a gracious tide that can cleanse everything it touches. So what I want you to know today is that no matter your past, no matter what you've gone through, what moral compromises you have made, you will find that the love of Christ is a restorative love, a love that can bring healing to your greatest hurts. I want to finish with this picture from C.S. Lewis's book, uh, the Prince, uh, Prince Caspian. There's this scene where Lucy uh, returns to Narnia, this magical world, and she comes across Aslan, the, the Christ character, the lion. And they have this little interaction together. Lucy looks at Aslan and says, you're bigger. And he, Aslan says, that's because you are older, little one. She asks, not because you are? And Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. The deeper you get into your moral sin and your brokenness, the deeper you go, you will find that the love of Christ, the mercy and forgiveness rises up to meet every need that you have. So there is no one too morally compromised to find healing in Christ. And I hope that as a church, we would continue to grow to see the greatness, the bigness of our God, the way that the cross bridges this, this massive gap between our brokenness and God's holiness. And so today, I hope if you haven't ever experienced the restorative love of God, I invite you to come and meet the one who doesn't fear mingling with the morally compromised. Come and meet the one whose love can bring healing and restoration. Holy Trinity Church, a, a, morally, cult, a, a morally corrupt culture produces morally com, uh, confused people. And so let's be a church that helps each other out. A morally corrupt culture also produces morally compromised people. So let us be a church that clings to the gospel, the truth of Christ for healing. Let us be a church that is a beacon of moral clarity in a morally confused world. Holy Trinity Church, let us cling fast to the hope that we have in Christ, the one who cleanses us, who sanctifies you,
who justifies you. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and loving Father, we come to you because you are our only hope. And Father, we come to you because we are tired and we are exhausted and we are overwhelmed by our shortcomings. And yet, Father, we know that you are a God who is gracious, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so we, Lord, we entreat you, we, we come to you and plead for you for restoring love. Father, help us as a community to be a place that helps each other out, that views one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, in this world, may we be able to proclaim a message of hope and healing. Father, may we continue to hold fast to our Savior, who is the one who has washed us clean by his blood. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.